I'm Hannah Raleigh, and this is Listen On Air. Our episode today is about the life and work of Chana Horwitz. Chana lived and worked for her entire life in Los Angeles and was born in 1932 and died in 2013. She studied graphic design in the early 1950s at Art Center College of Design and then Fine Arts at Cal State Northbridge in the early 1960s. In 1972, she received a BFA from the California Institute of the Arts in Valencia, California. There, she studied with John Baldessari and Ellen Caprow, participating in some of Caprow's happenings, as well as making her own performances. In 1968, Chana Horowitz submitted a proposal titled Suspension of Vertical Beams Moving in Space to the LA County Museum of Art and Technology Exhibition. The proposal was for a sculpture comprising of eight moving beams suspended in the air by magnetism and lit at varying intensities. The project, in the end, included work by only male artists. However, Chana's attempt to graphically describe the movement of the beams and systems of eight that she developed for the proposal became the foundation of her numerous bodies of work, including the series Sonic Kinetography. Sonic Kinetography comprises drawings, performances and musical compositions. In a 1976 article published in Flash Art, Chana described the system by saying, I have created a visual philosophy by working with deductive logic. I had a need to control and compose time as I had controlled and composed two-dimensional drawings and paintings. To do this, I chose a graph as the basis for the visual description of time. Using this graph, I made compositions that depicted rhythm visually. Sonic kinetography is discussed in detail in this episode, which takes the form of a conversation between Chana Horowitz's daughter Ellen Davis and Listen Gallery's Ossian Ward. They discuss her life and work in a recording that took place in Chana's studio in Los Angeles earlier this year. Ellen worked with Chana on her earliest performances and continues to manage the estate while also working with dancers to choreograph new versions of seminal pieces such as At the Tone and Poem Opera. So this is Chana's studio and it's been kept pretty much intact. Um, Curators and directors and so forth find it interesting to see how she worked, to see uh, things pretty much as they are. Um, And the rest of the house is pretty much like a Chana Horwitz gallery, (laughs) always up, because it's all of her work on the walls. And um, it's a lot, a lot of the work that's on the walls she put up on the walls too. I mean, some of it's switched out and my own personal collection is in here now that had been in storage for a long time. A lot of the, my, some of my things are integrated. A lot of the little things that are around are things I gave her and she cherished. So on some level, it's starting to, the whole thing is starting to merge in my mind. <laughs> you know, I'm not seeing hers, mine as much anymore. It's all kind of blending. But um, we can we can move around and, yeah, and you know, you can see... Several bodies of her work are represented here. They all stem from from an, an inquiry that goes deeper and deeper, where as she reduces her choices and finds a greater depth through less span, a greater investigation um, to the essence, to to and through truth, you know, to really following certain set of rules. Um, with great rigor and great integrity to find out what would happen. That was actually an acting question that she had in her practice. What would happen if I, Mm -hmm. what would happen if I did this? What would happen if I, if I sliced it from bottom to top, from, you know, left to right, from, um, front to back, 
what would it look like? And um, it's really a, a grand play of, of eight, of the number eight, of which was very much influenced, I think, by uh, watching me. I, I trained as a ballet dancer, mm-hmm. you know, from being a little child, and she would come to my classes, and we count to eight in dance. Um, and as a very, very young child studying tap, you know, and helping me learn my lessons and tap and learn the choreography, and she would count. Um, and she was fascinated with choreography and, and um, how, how, how you can choreograph in time and space and really wanted to do that graphically. I wanted to see how she could do that graphically. And that's really um, how sonic kinetography was born. I mean, literally, it was born out of trying to explain movement of beams for a kinetic sculpture uh, proposal that she did for uh, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, Art and Technology um, show. And she was trying to figure out how to choreograph these beams in space, how to, how to put that down on paper. Mm. The lights, the way the lights worked and the movement of the beams. And um, in doing that, she came up with sonic kinetography. And the word sonic kinetography was coined for her later. Um, her early sonic kinetography drawings are, are probably titled more like movement of the beams. <laughs> but um, a lot of her work stemmed from that. She, she went from uh, square to seeing what it would look like expanded into a cube, if it grew into a cube and then back down into a square. And does the number eight also respond to the graph paper that yes. she favoured? Yes. And I guess, is this her, her actual drawing table over here? Her yes, kind of... she, she, did, she drew here and this. This is yep. a drafting table. But yes, that was, that's a, another big part of it, the eighth to an inch grid. Mm-hmm. And all of these... Materials which are still left here, I presume, are the original pens and yes. inks. And yep. did she kind of stick to a strict script in terms of what she used as a material for her work? Was well, she, it varied. Was she a... You know, she used, uh, you know, appropriate to the medium. Mm. <laughs> varied, of course. You know, when she was working with casein, she typically used a ruling pen, mm-hmm. which is a drafting tool. And um, most of her works uh, in color are done with this ruling pen. A lot of the work that appears to be like thread, a lot of people think it's thread, that was done with a ruling pen. And then um, she used quite often a rapidograph pen Mm -hmm. as well. And then, of course, brushes for paintings. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and you can see it all here, all the rulers Mm -hmm. and all the inks and the colors. Mm -hmm. And then the plan chests, I guess, which are part of the... I mean, it, it all looks serialized. It looks very organized, and I suppose that was the way she worked. Yes, she was. She was very organized. Things are, things have been archived. Mm. I started archiving her work um, before she passed away, um, and and have continued, you know, continued it. And so things, you know, underneath and inside might be more organized <laughs> than they were. Um, but yes. But things aren't organized in terms of they're if they're organized in terms of the safety of the work and the size, not in terms of the body of work. So, and that's how how it was um, 
archived too. It's not yeah. archived archived in order, <laughs> you know, any kind of order. And and archiving, I keep, you know, it's like I, I'm getting such an overview of everything that I don't even think she would have had, you know, and realizing certain certain things she was working on that never really um, were framed or mm-hmm. she never showed. And I'm, I'm thinking, this is really a whole body of work and it's the same work. It's like all, it's all... It all stems from the same basic concepts, so it's they all relate to each other, even though visually they start looking very different from each other. So, and the different uh, series, I suppose, are represented here. But sonic kinetography you talked a little bit about was almost like the one long career, long thread. But then there were lots of other shorter series or. Mm Do you want to describe any of those particular ones that we have around here, perhaps? Yeah, well... Um, Pick a favourite, maybe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she would return to, to, to these along the way, or she would have other ideas of how to express them or manifest them. But one body of work grew out of another. And um, there was one body of work called Variations and Inversion on a Rhythm, which actually came out of a mistake... She was very rigorous about holding to her linear logic, to mm-hmm. the rules that she set up. And if she found a mistake, it would invalidate the work. She really wanted to see what would happen if she played it out accurately. She could make a mistake graphically, like a, a line a little bit flubbed or something, mm-hmm. and she'd do what she could to correct it. But later on, when computer art became popular, she did not like... It when people thought she did computer art. So she would allow her hand to show more. But if she made a mistake in terms of the logic, in terms of the, the concept that she mm-hmm. had set up, she would invalidate the work. It would be like she would write wrong or mistake or fold it in half. And she could be at the end of, an, of the most complex mm-hmm. drawings that she did. And if she found a mistake... It would be wow. wrong. Okay. Yeah, so she really had a lot of integrity around mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and with a pattern or a work that becomes the sum of its parts and the pattern is kind of generative and keeps coming and coming, you would presumably notice if there was a mistake, you know, that something didn't quite fit. Only she would. Yeah. Well, I started all of this to, to talk about variations and inversion on a rhythm which basically came out of a mistake that she was fascinated with. And then she did the mistake on purpose, sequentially, mm-hmm. linearly, in the same kind of way that she did the other. The other. So she was very honest to it once she made, you know, decided to, to work with that. So some of her work might have come out, out of mistakes, you mm-hmm. know, that she really embraced. But it was, it was embraced in that, in that same kind of way as, you know, really seeing it through, really, you know, doing it on purpose and seeing what what would happen if she did that. And how would she set out the rule? Would she, because on a lot of the works, there's a key, there's almost like a, a, an instruction. Yes. And would she then that, posit that instruction, mm-hmm. maybe write that in the corner and then continue it until yes. she was done? Well, um, yes, she would come up with um, a certain... Um, key or uh, a a signature piece that would be the pattern 
you know, that she wanted to follow. And then she would follow that through. So you absolutely answered your own question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I can think of some other questions. So you were, you, 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 you originally asked, um, show, show me different works that, um, that may have not been, you know, sonic kinetography mm. or, and they're, they're hanging around, you know, I mean, um, this is, this is Moray's. Um, and this is a moray sampler where it's showing all the different. There was a point where she. This is towards the end, in in a sense that she of her of her investigation where she um, and she, she her investigation never ended. But I'm saying this is one of the later investigations. Is, is would be a better way to put it. Um, where she realized that what she everything came down to angles of lines that she was doing. And so she started exploring eight angles in, in juxtaposed uh, in relationship to each other. And the moray is the squiggle. So you see how over here you could barely see this squiggle? Mm-hmm. And here you really see it? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, later, these became, uh, the, she worked with these that you could hardly see, and she called them subliminals or subliminal morays because you could barely see that, that moray pattern. And so it was just, they are yeah. on, is that a house, gold leaf, gold leaf uh-huh. with these pens or? Yeah, it's ruling pen. Um, yeah. uh, it's uh, casein, placa, casein mm-hmm. on gold leaf. Yeah, it's kind of, and there's an intensity that continues. You can mm-hmm. see her working through something, but then also that the outcome is... Is sort of beautiful, but still not decorative. It's very, as you said, it's very rigorous. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a, a method to it. Yeah. I should give a shout out to one of your other artists who has become my friend and unfortunately who Chana never knew. I'd like to think she knows of him now because, and it's Harun Mirza, and his, his work is right there. Yeah. He did that, um, he did that for me. It was oh. a trade. <laughs> for Chana Horowitz, and it's programmed sonic kinetography, and it's a solar panel with eight lights programmed um, according to comp- sonic kinetography composition number three, and it it needs the light in order to, sh- you know, it's it got a little bit of light, so it's all red, but usually they're they're moving and they're moving like, you know, really quite fast, eight different colors. Yeah. So it's kind of neat. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's he's not the only artist who's uh, become interested in trying to expound upon Chana's experiments in terms of either <clears throat> works of art or music or choreography. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the choreography work that you've done because that's your background, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, dance, but also how, how can these works then be staged as... Yeah either dance or time-based medium works mm-hmm. when they are, as you've also said, kind of two-dimensional. Um, Graphic it, ends in themselves. Yeah. They are, they are, what's so exciting, I think, what's so profound about them is that she's talking about the fourth and fifth dimensions in two dimensions. And they are graphically ends in themselves, which incidentally can be performed and have been. Uh, and, you know, there's been animation, light, um, uh, sound, um, all different kinds of sound, from percussion to Moog synthesizer to, um, to, to, to a chamber orchestra, um, 
And did she envisage some of these or, or did they come naturally or, or as a result of what she was doing? Did she also want to produce music from them? She knew. She knew that it was like a universal language. Mm. She also worked with um, my tap teacher, <laughs> my, first, my first dance teacher, creating a tap notation uh, with it. Um, she thought it could be used for, for psychology, for business. I mean, she really saw how it could... It could be a notation system and was kind of thrilled with that. But um, also, you know, they, they were also complete unto themselves. So mm. They're not unrealized if they're, if they're seen graphically, you know, but they can be performed. And the only, usually the only one that's been performed is composition number three. Uh, there has been a musical... Uh, interpretation of number two and I'm still confused I, I don't know whether um, Haroon has used I think he's used different uh, compositions in his chamber for Horowitz but yeah I think I think he's I think he's managed to work out a way to transcribe the them and I don't know which mm-hmm. one he's definitely done he's definitely done three yeah but I think he might have been I think he might have played around with others too um, and was it interesting, I mean, obviously it was something that you brought the choreography to it, mm-hmm. but was it interesting for her to be able to collaborate with her daughter or, what, you know, what was her thoughts on the collaborative nature of what she'd made? Because she's yeah. done it sort of, I'm guessing, in isolation or I guess she's yes. she's working away yes. in a solitary way yeah. and then it can become something new afterwards. Yeah, I think it was really thrilling for her. She was... Um, uh, relaxed uh, in the way people interpreted her work, maybe more than I am. It's a terrible thing to admit. I guess being her daughter and the and the um, responsibility of course. of, yeah. um, of preserving that, of preserving her integrity. Mm. You know, and I really want to see that it's done accurately. If it's done. Mm. You know, I mean, there's infinite amounts of infinite ways it could be done, and it could be done in in so many ways I've never even dreamed, and I'd be so happy and okay with that. But if it's not really holding to her composition and and you know her structure, if it's just like, oh, let me interpret, you know, this uh, this color, you know, or something like that, you know, without holding to the structure, then I I would just say, you know variation on a theme of Chana Horowitz or influenced by Chana yeah. Horowitz but not necessarily um, and uh, early on I think there were some of those types going on um, and then later you know and there and there have been you know in her lifetime there were accurate beautiful interpretations as well um, I we've loved our relationship and collaboration and connection I'm, I think she was thrilled by it you know, on, on some level, because I'm her daughter, it might have been marginalized a little bit, but not. She really deeply respected me as an artist, and you know, um, you know, I think she embraced our being able to do that. And maybe it's a bit unfair of me to say that she was working in a vacuum. I mean, what was mm-hmm. her relationship like with what else was going on on the West Coast? What what was her kind of artistic milieu? Who was she? close to and you know there's a lot of talk now about a sort of a west coast minimalism as opposed to what was going on in new york what what, where were her kind of allegiances if you like yeah well she she was 
she just absolutely loved and respected Saul Lewitt. Mm-hmm. You know, she um, she didn't. She had been doing this, you know, kind of conceptual art before she knew about it. And when she read about him, she's like, "Oh my God, that's what I'm doing!" <laughs> you know, and and they became friends. So she was very, she very much respected him. And did she, she correspond with him, or did yes. she write letters and kind of explain and then meet later? They corresponded and they met and they uh, traded work. So um, there were there were many artists that she that she respected and loved, and she had very very good artist friends um some some of which did work very different than hers Mm. you know um that were really good friends she was a very full person she was um an amazing mother and an amazing friend and a great family member sister daughter you know she was just very committed to to all of her relationships yet she was also very committed to her to her work you know her wife, a beautiful wife, um, and um, she, uh, but she was totally, you know, immersed and very disciplined about her work on a, you know, on a daily basis. <laughs> so, and here, here she, she kind of, you know, in answering to your questions, on one level, she didn't want to be influenced. You know, originality was very important to her, so she wanted to go around with blinders on, but she. She, um, and she wasn't, she didn't like politicking. She didn't like the art world from that standpoint. So she, she did separate herself in, in a way. And I think her isolation was artistically um, a blessing in, in disguise. I, I think she, um, she thrived in that, within that. Um, yet I think she also really loved um, interacting, mm. you know, and I don't. I think she felt not seen and understood by the art world at the time. Um, you know, when she put herself out there, she, her work wasn't even acknowledged. Sometimes it was even questioned whether it was art in- initially. Um, but later in her life, she did. She she definitely started getting more recognition and feeling like her work was being really appreciated and seen. Because the, was the previous studio in the Hidden Hills? What was that? That was a another yes. address. Where was yes. that? That's in the West San Fernando Valley, okay. and it is. It's called Hidden Hills, and she, <laughs> and it was. She had a beautiful home and a and a studio uh, right there. Yeah. Um, like you, you know, the home was a little bit separate from the studio. Mm-hmm. She walked down the hill a little bit, and the studio was there. A great studio. She did a lot of beautiful work there. Definitely, she wanted to come here to be part. I think it was a commitment. It was like a, it was like a, an, uh, an intention in action to be part of the world, to join in, to engage, to to make to to you know, that it was it was that kind of a movement for her. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose that that accounts for the idea that, uh, you know, you're close to the museums close to the galleries did she have good relationships with the museums and galleries when she was here was was that something that she uh sought after or was it more a happy coincidence of people expressed that kind of interest in her work well she would send her slides she was very disciplined around sending her slides around to different um 
galleries and always trying to get a gallery. And she had some, um, she had a couple of happy coincidences. Yeah. I mean, there was early on, she, Melinda Wyatt on Market Street in Venice. Market Street in Venice was a happening place. And so that was really neat when Melinda Wyatt represented her. And um, and then um, so, uh, Michael Solway and Angela Jones of Solway Jones re- really, really tapped in, really, they really got each other. And that was a beautiful um, association. So, and then from there, there was a gallery in um, Berlin that um, that picked her up, and I think out of that, a lot of a lot of things started happening, you know. And she had she she was shown with artists that she really respects, like Hannah Darboven and Carl Andre, and yeah. you know, there were there, it started to really happen from there. Yeah, I can see those mm-hmm. links absolutely. And did she travel much to Europe? Was it somewhere that she was interested in? She did in the towards the end because mm. there was so much going on. Mm. Um, and then early on too, she had I think the first poem opera, which was um, Sonic Kinetography Composition Number Three. She created a a, a a poem opera out of it. So there were eight eight voices, eight word, eight voices that each had eight words all representing the divided person, you know, like happy, sad, inner, outer, and all of them in this cacophonous way uh, uh, saying these words. And um, I've directed those performances a lot, but her first performances were in in Bologna, Italy, if, I am, if I'm correct, or Milan, or both, uh, of the poem opera. And that was pretty early on that I think that was the somewhere in the 80s we have to check and was that (laughs) would did she view that as a kind of concrete poetry exercise or were they they came out of her inquiries into sonic intography and and were they part of the same drive well it's it was kind of a a very think a big thing about it as you asked me as I realized it's a very full expression of her in a way because she had a very she was very interested in psychology and and she also did some writing, you know, some kind of stream of conscious kind of writing and poetry. And so this was just a way. And I, I saw an early uh, piece of writing of hers where she um, said, I would like to see this done in poetry someday. And it was before she, and then she ended up doing it, you know, <laughs> so... Um, where she's talking about sonic kinematography, yeah. And she she'd kind of envisaged it, and then eventually mm-hmm. managed to to do it like that. Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, it's hard to describe the work because it's intensely visual, but it's also uh, it does have this kind of um, pattern, a sort of ever changing modular. Yeah, uh, which which you're is looking also, right now at, at yeah, a at a, a piece called the design from the design series, mm. and it's basically a deconstruction of the canon series the canons that she did are are like the more complex ones and she's showing you here each um aspect of it so yeah and they're difficult to describe in language because of the method of the the diagonals which sometimes match which sometimes then don't match which meet they have nodes and then they kind of 
come back around. It's, it's an overlay of like the simplest within the pattern to the most complex. So um, even though the the canons didn't necessarily come from these patterns, these patterns are in there and it de- deconstructed. I'm actually realizing this as I, you know, the neat thing about her work is that even though I was totally into it while she was alive and doing it, and I was like, arguably one of her biggest fans throughout since I was a little girl, you know, since I always was fascinated with her process and she shared it with me. I'm lucky enough to be able to say, um, I keep discovering, you know, I, I keep discovering more and more all the time. And I'm realizing as I'm looking at this and speaking to you that, um, that this, I don't think that these, you know, she did not do these to get to that. I don't, I think she deconstructed that to get to these. So she was simplifying rather yeah, than... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. interesting. And in some way, that was what she was always trying to do, to kind of find some sort of essence, some sort of truth, to pare away rather than to complicate. But I, I suppose, was there a mathematical grounding? Was there a sort of... You know, was she interested in physics and no. theories of... and that's another really poetically hysterical thing about all of this. She thought herself to be a dummy in math. I mean, I, I hate these pejorative terms, but I'm quoting her. Yeah. Okay? She, she said that she just, she never took higher math. She only, you know, took the most, she only took the most basic of math. She had trouble balancing her checkbook you know she made mistakes with numbers all the time mm-hmm. but these but physicists come here engineers wow. would come okay. and say do you realize what you've done mm. no <laughs> this is genius <laughs> i think what she did was she deconstructed the most complex to the most simple okay because i often say that the canon series are I mean the design series is a deconstruction of the canon series and I think that's true but it's a deconstruction in a, in a different way than I than I think that how it was created because how the canons were created were by layering um, so the um, the reduced version of um, the four levels sonic kinetography on top of each other yeah, it's interesting how so, she can go from sort of seemingly simple two-dimensional sort of linear works with the overlay, then it suddenly becomes more three-dimensional. And I suppose that's what some of those other series like the Slices works or or works where there's a sort of opening out of form. Mm-hmm. Um, how did she arrive at that? Were they experiments or did she... Did she sort of sketch them out before she would complete a, a final work? Because, you know, sometimes the drawings, I guess, take well, a long time to well, actually... Well, she would, she would, like, that's how she came up with slices. She was, she was um, saying, what would happen if I slice this top to bottom? What would happen if I slice this front to back? What would happen if I slice this side to middle? She, she envisioned it like a loaf of bread. So, I mean, she clearly had an, an amazing... Um, geometrical, uh, you know, facility like within her head, which I don't don't have. I mean, to me, it's amazing because I because <clears throat> I don't. <laughs> but she 
could do that and um, and came up with all the variations and inversion on a rhythm and all of all of those works. Um, what did she think about the sort of other movements that were going on in the 60s and 70s, like kinetic art or op art? Was yeah, she, she aware was, of those and yes. was she interested in them? Yes, she liked them very much, mm. you know. Yeah, kinetic art, op art. She, um, yeah, you, we, actually her library is upstairs. We we still have her library, her, you know, which contains a lot of, a lot of books of, artists on artists and um, art history and we can go up there psychology if there's some more and, things you want to show okay this is a canon here yeah this is a um, sort of cross mm-hmm. shape mm-hmm. but again um sort of beginning does she begin top left or how does you know, is it like writing? Is it left to right or it just depends on the... Well, the, the sonic kinetography drawings are often read from left to right, bottom to top. Mm-hmm. Um, but she did a whole set that sometimes is called sonic kinetography expanded where it's horizontal and it's read like a book, top, top left to right. Down. Yeah, down. Yeah. yeah. So um, in the case of the canon... It you just that's not it's not red like it's just yeah. it's just <laughs> you just look at it yeah. and you look the way that yeah. you are trained. To there look there is an optical element to, to it. Mm-hmm. There's an optical element to it, and a kind of mm-hmm. I suppose what the painters of the fifties and sixties were looking at this kind of all over surface. The idea mm-hmm. that there was something going on everywhere it was there was no piece of the paper or the canvas left. Untouched. I mean, she was thrilled with the optical aspect sometimes you know of her work that just came about um organically through honestly following her linear logic um do you understand it wasn't like contrived like no. oh, let me try to get this optical illusion exactly yeah you know? that, that's why maybe she had a difficult relationship with it but if she liked op- art as it was called and she didn't shy away from that connection then it's interesting but it wasn't in advance of trying to create some kind of optical no. illusion or some optical effect or kinetic right. moving work it was just the result of her painstaking yeah work right i mean it did i think visual i mean she was a great admirer and could get into many different types of art all different all different periods of art you know she she loved um, but you know, some work—the work that was let, I, conceptually had more gravitas. You know, that had more meaning or profundity. She was very. She loved artwork that made you see in a new way. That she really deeply respected. She thought the important artists do things that make you see in a new way. That change consciousness. That you know, change consciousness is my terminology. But that. Um, but you said she was interested you know. in psychological effect as well. I suppose. Or she read psychology, or she was into that. Well, yeah. So, but I don't think I think her work was transcendent of psychology. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that poem opera points to stuff. But mm. yeah, no, her work was trans gender, trans religion. You know, <laughs> she she is was Jewish, and she was non a non religious against organized religion cultural Jew, you know, very, mm. um, 
And, um, but she, she, when she was invited to be in shows with Jewish art, she was like, not, not so into that. Yeah. Or even women's art. Fair you know, yeah. she totally embraced, you know, embraced women's equality and considered herself a feminist, but she didn't do women's art. Mm. That's know? interesting. <laughs> mm. Yeah. This is another design series one. It's in the shape of a parallel parallelogram. Mm. It's kind of a lozenge shape. Fits very nicely here in the in the uh, in the apartment. And what about other cultures? Was she interested in other cultures? Because yes. we have a very beautiful textiled sofa area here. But was that was it an influence for her, or is it purely uh, you know this was self generated? And again, for... it was like she did this one sonic cinematography drawing that looks like um, Aztec. Uh, an Aztec print or something. And it was totally an organic outgrowth of her linear logic for that composition. It was not, she was not trying to do that. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh my, it was always discovering. She was discovering what it looked mm. like as she was doing it. Mm. Very different than, um, I mean, you know, she she would create, the composition would be created on paper, you know, she would do working drawings that she would see, but then those were surprising once once they were played out. So, and there are versions on on a theme. So we have these uh, works. This is the language series. The language series with the mm-hmm. grid, mm-hmm. which uh, is you know this kind of orange line grid with the black um, blocks and mm-hmm. black shapes within. But I suppose. There were lots of different iterations of this, but were they... Yes, I can explain that to you. Um, This originally was done on these little index cards when she was on vacation with my father um, in um, 1964. He went out to play tennis and she stayed in the room and did these, played these little games with numbers and shapes um, on these index cards and then forgot about them. And then in about 2003, she found them. And she was like, oh, my God, this is exactly the same work I've been doing. <laughs> so that's when they start. That's why sometimes you'll see 1964 slash 2004 or something like that. So language series one is she did. We don't have that right here. That's more like that one. Mm. It's with circles and rectangles. Yeah. And each each. Each shape ha- had a different number, and then she'd play out the numbers, uh, you know, like one, one, two, three, one, one, two, four, one, two, five, one, two, six, with each of these shapes. And then language series two is just the rectangles. And then language series three, and those two she she conceived in 1964. Language series three is uh, really uh, a result of her minimalism, and that was just the grid Mm. it's just the grid and where the grid intersects at eight so sometimes you know on the page it'll intersect out on the first line and sometimes it'll intersect on the second and the other other intersection is on the third or on the fourth and so it's it's that and i like the way it was called the language series does that does that relate to the fact that these had a kind of if not phonetic there was some kind of 
you know, I can see their, their numbers attached to each of the, the forms, but that she was developing her, her own language, I suppose. Yes, exactly. This is mm. a language. It's like each one of these, see how each one of those is a, is a shape, each one of those shapes is numbered? Mm. Well, then she played, she, she chose, she took three. Yeah. Like that first one is one, and then it looks like um, uh, six, seven, one, six, seven. And the other, the next one's probably one, six, eight. Yeah. And then, so then it has its, uh-huh. yeah, continuity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so... And it, it makes a little picture. It's y- like a little yeah. pictogram. So when did she, did she know when to stop? I guess she stopped because there was the limits of the paper that the size she was working on. And some of those works that we're going to show at Listen mm-hmm. came from their multi-partite works. There's lots of works that kind of stitched together to make a greater whole. How did she come to those bigger compositions? Were they something that just expanded as she was expanding her practice? Yeah, I mean, those works, you're going to have one that's 64 and another that's, I think, 110. Individual pieces. Yeah, part pieces. Yeah, individual drawings. Um, And uh, there's one at Muzak right now that's 80 Mm. um, part pieces, and those are all... um, the two at listen will be are called variations and inversion on a rhythm, and the one at um, music is called flowings, and they're both essentially the same work. I mean, the same work, body of work the same yeah. body of work. Mm. Um, in a in a similar way, she wouldn't exactly repeat herself because I would say that although these things are often variations on a theme, they're not like additions. They're not things that she would constantly repeat. They're more like each. Once she's done, she moves on to the next set of rules or the next right. play or the next right. idea. So well, that's, that's pretty much true, although there was a point where she redid some work on Mylar that was on graph paper, mm-hmm. and she then also came back and she just, you know, there was work that she did really, really early on, and she realized how she could really commit to it more in terms of its, you know, the the beauty of its of its expression you know mm. and so the way she placed it on the page and maybe drew a line all the way around it you know the way she framed it and the way she placed it on the page became you know she she had more fun with that mm. yeah so but ju- yes generally in terms of her creative process um the one one body of work grew into the next and she just kept exploring within that body new compositions Mm. new variations you know variation one variation two i mean i can see why physicists and other types of people outside of the art world would be interested in these systems because they are generative they are like taking elements of natural forms which generate and grow at a certain rate and so they mimic lots of other things outside of what she was doing you know they have I guess, an application in mathematics, in physics, in the natural world, in textile, in, you know, all kinds of fields. And as we yes. talked about dance and music and literature and, and language. There was a, she, in the later years, rented out the rooms upstairs to um, UCLA students. And one became part of the family. He, he, he lived here for a long time and he was getting his PhD in engineering his name is Diego Rosso, and he um, he used to look at her work and say, "Oh, 
that's the Doppler effect, or oh, that's um, um, invariance, covariance, you know, variance, mm. you know. And so she, some of these things became part of her titles, and I, you know, she hadn't really known about those concepts, yeah. but they were in that, within yeah. the work. Somehow. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they, they mimic yeah. waveforms and other types of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, sound waves or, I guess, kind of, you know, moving. And she was very interested in that and how nature had its own mathematical logic. Like, the you know, the Fib- she was really interested in the Golden Mean and the Fibonacci series yeah. and other artists that mm-hmm. used that. Also are very interested in... Um, like the Nautilus and things that have that, have that naturally within its order. And there, she thought that things might appear chaotic, but if you get far enough away from it, you realize that there's a, a real um, logic behind it all, yeah. a real order behind it all. Yeah. <laughs> So this is a working drawing, and you can see, <laughs> you can see how. And this was such a find for me when I was archiving. This was just stuck in a lot of other stuff. I was like, "Oh my goodness, look at this!" So by working it's, drawing, um, I mean you can see all of the workings and the, and the yeah, no, notations, notations, and she has trying scrib- out scribbles, pens, pens and yeah. and phone numbers on the yeah. side, and you can see she's working on. You know, it's it's every direction sometimes she had it turned this way sometimes she had it turned that way yeah back to front mm-hmm. yeah but look she signed it and dated it wow so even though it was sort of not you know something that she kept out and that she framed or that she said look <coughs> look what i did she, she so she maybe she didn't differentiate between a sketch on and a final drawing or i suppose actually she she did, and mm. that's been really hard for my brother and I mm-hmm. um, to to kind of move with as the world doesn't differentiate. You know, the mm. galleries don't. It's like the working drawings are just as uh, valuable, just mm. as uh, interesting. Because we, we lived through her, all of her solo exhibitions, except for the last in Berlin, she curated herself. Okay. And um, she always put up her best work. And in fact, when she wouldn't be invited, she wouldn't use any work that she had already done, even the work that she hadn't been uh, ever seen or exhibited that was like profound and excellent. She would create a whole new body. She would use that to inspire herself to come up with a whole new body of work. She can. Yeah, she always looked forward and and used it as a way of motivating her to do a whole new body of work. And um, so we're used to that. So like sometimes seeing the working drawings, and I, actually I'm I'm um, I love now. Uh, now I've had some experience. I'm getting more used to it. But um, we've been um, loaning out her more diagrammatic drawings so that it provides um, a window of understanding into how she came up with and what is behind the work. The finished work, hmm. you know. So. <laughs>
Listen On Air is recorded and mixed by Henry Law and edited by Ossian Ward. The title music is written by Victor M. Jakeman. To hear about upcoming episodes of On Air, do sign up to our newsletter at listengallery.com. Thank you to Ellen Davis, Zoe Ansbach and Thal Balanis. See you next time for Listen On Air. There's been an error. Close down the browser. Restart the computer. And return online. 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 online.